You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we thank you for the illumination of your word to our hearts so that we might obey, honor, and love you. Because it is when we are doing as you instruct in our lives that we tell ourselves, we tell you that we love you. And so this morning as we we listen to Paul, as he encourages and admonishes the Corinthians to, to live in a way that will please you rather than that will please themselves, we ask that you would allow us to take that to heart. And to hear your voice through your word, which is where you speak to us. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, last week, we finished up about not passing judgment before the time. <clears throat> Letting God bring to light the things. And for those of us with a, a heightened sense of justice, heightened sense of justice, the Lord will bring justice to those who need it. But it will be in his time. And then Paul reminded the Corinthians that he was applying the figures of speech that he had used before the farmer, uh, the servant steward, the builder, uh, to to refer to himself, to Cephas, and to Apollos. And he was doing it for their sake so they could get a picture of what it was supposed to, how, how a church, how a body of believers should actually respond to ministers. And then he he spent time, uh, well, actually, we spent time discussing that uh, because what happens when when believers think too highly of themselves or too highly of a minister, they become arrogant. And Paul didn't want that for the Corinthian church. And the Father, the Lord doesn't want that for us today. Um, he wants us to live in peace with one another. And and so as we continue through First Corinthians chapter four, we're going to have Paul. Paul will flesh this out even more. The things that that uh, that mitigate against proper living, proper biblical living. Again, good theology can result in good living, but bad theology will always result in wrong responses, wrong living. So let's uh, let's read chapter four, First Corinthians chapter four again. I think it's always helpful and instructive just to just delve into the entire section that we're in. First Corinthians chapter four, servants of Christ. Let a man regard us in this manner. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both to light who will, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one another, one against the other. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. 
You have all you have become kings without us. And I would indeed that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come soon if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So far be it from us to assume that the prosperity gospel started in this last century. It started probably in the first century, most likely. Actually, it did. It's right here in First Corinthians. Um, it's the theology or the philosophy that if, that I can have everything. That if I just do a certain sort of things, certain set of things, everything will be mine. Prosperity, health, wealth, and wisdom. And the the Corinthians were practicing that, and it, in much the same way that it's practiced today. In order to have that, you kind of have to water stuff down a little bit. A little bit here, a little bit there. God won't mind, the Corinthians thought, so that so that we can get along in the world, so that we can have, you know, we can be neighborly, we can be friends with everybody. And so that's kind of what the Corinthians are doing here. Uh, that's what the Greek philosophies tended to lean towards. Uh, some of them were just strange, but a lot of them leaned towards that. And so they had this idea that they were superior, that they were, they had things that nobody else had. And that they had done it themselves. And that is the arrogance that comes along with the false theology that they were living, that they were imbibing. So we ended up with verse six last year. Now, these things, brethren, I figuratively applied to myself. Paul is harking back to the figures of speech that he had used. I mentioned earlier farmers, servants, stewards, um, builders, and saying that he was doing this so that none of you would exceed what is written. And what is it about false theology if it isn't that it always exceeds what is written? It looks to things that don't exist in Scripture. It fabricates. It builds. And it, it encourages us to think thoughts that have no foundation in the Word of God. And so that's what the Corinthians were doing. One of the foundation, one of the foundational things they were thinking that, or one of the things they were thinking that was not founded in the Word of God was this idea as it says in verse seven, for who regards you? Paul, now he's going to ask a series of questions. Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? 
So here Paul asks the Corinthians three questions. Who told you you were superior? What do you have that wasn't given you? And if everything was given to you, why are you bragging about having it? So these three questions will will raise more. They will reveal more about the heart of pride that permeated the Corinthian church. They thought, and and this this can permeate any any church, unfortunately. They thought they were somebody special. They thought they had special gifts that nobody else had. And they thought that they had generated these gifts in themselves. So... The first question he asked, where he says, who regards you as superior, in the Greek is more like, who separated you out as special? It comes from the Greek word diakrino. And it means to, to separate, to make a distinction, to discriminate, to prefer, to, um, and actually in some cases to withdraw from. You, it's an arrogant, it can be, I should say, a, a word in context here, it's, it's an arrogant word. I have separated myself out as special. I'm better than you. I have gifts that you don't have. And I generated, I caused these, I built these gifts in myself. It's all my effort that did this. That's what the Corinthians were thinking and saying. So this is a rich word. It's a, and Paul's choice of this word by direction of the Holy Spirit is truly inspired. Well, that sounds like the rest of Scripture isn't inspired. It is also inspired. Let me word it that way. It carries with it all the connotations of superiority you can imagine. It's a word that means judging. One that talks about critical review and careful thought. It might even in some ways, in keeping with Paul's tendency in First Corinthians here, it might in some ways be sarcastic in that the Corinthians were elevating themselves. But if they really had a clear view of themselves, they would know that it was more important to have a humble view that God would want them to have. They would see that they're no better than anyone else. Pride is probably is one of the main driving forces uh, in all of the ills that plague the human race. I think you could sit down and look at some of the worst of the history of the human race and trace most of the happenings back to its source, which would be the pride of the people that were involved. The Corinthians had it in spades, but, but we should not boast ourselves about being humble. <laughs> no pun intended. One other thing. And, and, and I try, I struggle with how to word this, and I may not have worded it too well, so if you have any questions, but sometimes what we do in our pride is we, we act humble in such a way that it calls upon the other person to affirm, oh no, you're really great. You're really good. You're, you know, uh, well, I sure screwed that song up. And they didn't hear the screw up. Only three people in the audience heard it that were musicians. They heard it, and they heard you cover it. But you're trying to exact praise. That's a false humility. And I think the Corinthians had this as well. You say things in order to get other people to build you up. That, that, that was for free, partly. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, that's in other sections of scripture that wasn't necessarily here. But that's one of the ways pride can expose itself. You can be the most prideful, shy person on the planet. Or one of them. I'm the most. Now say something nice about me. <laughs> See how it works? We want others to brag about us. Well, they think highly of me. So we use that in our humility. Hum- humility, true humility is a remarkable, a remarkably rare thing. And those who have it don't know they have it. Isn't that something? <laughs> those who don't have it think they do. So at any rate, his first question who regards you as superior? Who set you aside as, 
as special. His second question gets at the way we elevate ourselves. We have something others don't. Or in, in kind of the obverse, we struggle with something no one else has ever struggled with. No one else has ever had it this bad. I've talked with people who are that way. Um, and uh, that's hard to get past. We know something others don't. Okay, let's set that aside. Or not set it aside. Let's deal with that. Every proper, every proper scriptural thought has most likely been thought in the last 6,000 years. So we don't have something nobody else has. We might have something that nobody else in our circle has thought of. But let's not couch it that way. Let's be thankful that God has brought to light some truth that we hadn't seen before. And, and explain it that way. Whatever we have, we have become, whatever we have become, is uh, largely been given to us. Let's face it. Okay, how am I supposed to do this, Tom? <coughs> like that. Cover my mouth. Okay. <laughs> I'm still learning how to actually use these things. Yeah. So that they don't have to edit so much. Let's face it. We were born without anything. And if we had good parents, they poured themselves into us. Whatever we have, whatever we have become, has largely been the result of what has been given or built into us by our parents, by others, by teachers, by friends. <clears throat> or it has been, in the, in the long term, all of it has been given to us by God. Um, originally, everything comes from God. The scripture says that every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. And scripture makes no bones about this. And the Corinthians should have known this. Paul would have taught this when he founded the church a year and a half earlier, or whatever the time period was. If we had good parents, God gave them to us. If we had bad parents, God gave them to us, and his reasons, whether or not we like them, are good. If we have certain skills, God gave them to us. If we lack certain skills, God didn't miss or forget us. You know the old story when they passed out brains, he was hiding behind the door. He wants us to depend upon him. And so even that lack of a gift is from God. The fact is, Christians have been given more than anyone else in the world, any non-Christian in the world. The lowliest Christian has been given more than the richest person in the world. He's been given, he has salvation, eternal life, the Holy Spirit indwelling him, and he has the word of God. Spiritual gifts, he has the love of the Father and blessings every day, many of which we are aware of and many more that we are not aware of. That's going to be another thing, at least in my view, when we get to heaven, we're going to say, oh, wow, that really was a blessing. I didn't see it at the time. Thank you, Lord. We're going to have plenty of time to be thanking him for things that we didn't know were thankful things. Then his third question gets about gets at what the human ego drives us to do. We brag or we try to get others to brag about us. Okay, so imagine a man unemployed for three years. And I'm trying to, to build a picture here. He's, he's not shaved. He's not clean shaven. He dresses slovenly. His house is run down. Uh, the weeds are in his, in his front yard, have outstripped the grass six to one. Um, and then one morning he wakes up and in his yard he finds a Lamborghini, a Corvette, a 26-foot camper trailer, and a new diesel pickup of Dodge, of course. A new diesel pickup with all the titles for each vehicle setting on the table in the 26-foot camper. And, and he makes sure all of his neighbors know that he did that. I caused, this, is, this, this was a result of, of my ingenuity and my hard work. And his neighbors 
That's what they do. They raise one eyebrow because they know it's illegal to hit him. Yep, I did it, he says. I worked hard, and these were delivered last night. Uh, and his neighbors know that he was a sluggard and a liar. This is what the Corinthians were doing. They were taking credit for all the good things that God had put into their lives. And Paul would have none of it. Later on, we're going to see them especially doing this with the spiritual gifts. And my spiritual gift is better than your spiritual gift. You know, that kind of stuff. So, we'll get to that. That's, that's a long ways from now. That's probably like nine years from now. But They were doing this. Everything we have, again, was built into us or given to us by God or by God through others. Paul loved the Corinthians too much to let them continue to wallow in this pride and self, it's self-deception. And it leads to ruin. It leads to utter ruin. It leads to ruin of relationships. It leads to ruin of, the, of yourself as well. And it can, it can damage, if you're a Christian, it can, it can really damage your relationship with the Father. It's very pointed, this verse. And when it was read in the Corinthian church, it probably caused quite a bit of a stir. Um, this particular verse, this section Augustine used in uh, the third and fourth century to great effect in dealing with what is known. Uh, uh, and Jim, Jim touched on this Pelagianism, uh, a Pelagian theology had arisen. The, this is the false belief that man can take steps towards God by himself without divine intervention. That permeates the church today. It's 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 Arminianism on steroids. Theologically, Pelagianism is the heresy. It is the heresy which holds that man can take the initial and fundamental steps towards salvation by his own efforts apart from divine grace. Historically, it was an aesthetic movement composed of disparate elements united under the name of the British theologian and exegete Pelagius, who taught in Rome in the early 4th and 5th centuries. I, had, I was off by a century. No big deal. 100 years. What's 100 years here and there? Pelagianism taught that people are capable of avoiding sin and choosing to live righteous lives even apart from God's grace. Pelagius reject, rejected the ideas of original sin and predestination. He believed that people were not inherently sinful and that they were able to live holy lives in accordance with God's will and merit salvation by good works. False, 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 and false. Every good gift, even the gift of faith, even the gift of faith, especially the gift of faith, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow nor tur- shadow of turning, variableness nor shadow of turning. Every good gift. Ephesians chapter 2 says that even the faith was given to us. And we've got to get that right at the first. It's a simple thing, but it's a pride-breaking thing. I didn't contribute to my salvation. Robert. Okay, so at what point does this, this philosophy become a problem? I would wager, wager is the wrong word, I would advocate that if you see a weed starting in your garden, stop that first weed. Because if you don't, what's next? Well, it'll die by itself, right? It just, it's, it'll be, it'll have weed terror and die. No. Pretty soon your garden will be overgrown with weed. Now, it's how we deal with the weed that concerns me. It, we can deal with it with a hammer, and the hammer may be necessary at some point. But to start with, if you're dealing with a friend that has this, this false notion that they somehow took the first step towards God, take them through the scriptures that refute this kindly, politely, explain to them, and, and especially relating it to your own life, so that they see you're not just condemning them, but you're condemning all of humankind. 
All of humankind cannot come to God. Will not. Actually, will not. Left to ourselves, we will choose darkness every time. Because the light reveals what's inside of us. And we don't really want to deal with that. I know the, the, the microphone can't see me shudder like that, but you can just imagine. So, it starts with anything that thinks I can come before God under any of my own power whatsoever. Okay, go for it, Robert. That would be, that would be an issue for each individual person you're dealing with. I can't give you a categorical statement because every, there may be people who are saved, but who have a little bit of a tinge of the wrong view here. And what they need is to be bumped in the right direction. And who knows how long that will take? I wish I did. I know of folks myself. I used to think that I had something in me to move in the direction of God. It wasn't until I began reading some of Spurgeon's Sovereign Grace sermons, I went, am I really that bad? Yeah, I really am. Yeah, I really am. I had a good friend. And, that's, and, and guess what, Robert? I had a good friend in a church I used to go to years ago who said, I think you'll enjoy this. You, you like this kind of stuff. And he handed me this little thin book called Serge Spurgeon's Sovereign Grace. I hated it. It was the most detestable piece of literature I ever read for a while. So I, I can't tell you. Each one's going to be individual. But I would be very careful about using the H word. Because nobody likes to be called a heretic. At least at the beginning. Now, when it comes to the point where they're teaching false theology, now we've got a problem. Because now they're, they're leading others astray. And so, that's what Augustine did with Pelagius. He called him out. You're a heretic. You're teaching that people can take initial... Just an initial step towards God. Can't do that. You're teaching that by your own efforts, apart from divine grace, you can do something good. You can live a, a, a good Christian life without divine grace. It's just not true. It's one of those things that, that without... Uh, I, I'm not good at metaphors, so I'm not going to instantly spring one upon you that will have no sense, make no sense whatsoever. Let's just leave it at this. People are not capable of avoiding sin and choosing to live righteous lives apart from God's grace. They're not. Christian or non-Christian. Especially non-Christian, maybe. Am I making sense? It's, it's God's grace that takes us through every single baby step, big step, medium step of living. That uh, first brings us to the place where we trust Him. It was His work to do that. And then after that, the steps we take throughout the rest of our lives to incorporate Scripture into our lives, to begin to combat the wrong philosophies we have and deal with the bad habits we have, the bad theology that's produced bad living. All of that is sovereign grace. Sure, start with the law. And so that, that would be a good thing for individual groups, people to, to begin discussing. How can, we better, how can we better communicate the richness of salvation from God's point of view? Um, yeah, we all struggle with it. I, I find myself doing that all the time. I still think, well, no, I'm going to get off in the weeds again. But I was going to talk about guns, but I'm not going to do that. It was going to be a bad metaphor, and it would have been so much fun for you guys to look at me and go, what is he talking about now? It's a good idea to rethink how do I present the gospel? And how can I present it in such a way, as much as possible, that it's pure and clean? It's an excellent thing, an excellent exercise and an excellent um, goal to have in mind. I think it is. Um, and I try to refine myself as much as possible all the time. 
Um, but but we need to not leave the law out of the equation because that's where everyone falls short. God gave us standards and nobody lives up to them and nobody wants to live up to them unless it'll get me a good picture in front of somebody else. It'll make me elevated. And then that's not living up to the standards, is it? It's like a, it's like a, a divine catch-22. Thank you. So, we can't let even a, a weed of false philosophy spring up in our lives. We must, we must be clean before God. And so, this was dealt with, by the way, and it's been condemned, condemned regularly by councils. This is some of the councils. The Council of Carthage, 412, 16 and 18. Ephesus, 431. The Council of Orange, 529. The Council of Trent, 2nd Helvetic, Oxford Confession, Gallican Confession, Belgic Confession, Anglican Articles, Canons of Dort. Um, it was just renounced and defeated and, and argued against again and again throughout Christianity. I wonder why that is. Is that because that weed keeps rearing its ugly head? So once you kill that first weed in your garden, are you done now? You've got the initial, you've got the, you've got the seed giver of the weed. I wish it was that way, but there's air around us and it brings more seeds and <laughs> I know, get rid of air. Yeah, Thomas. I wondered if someone would ask that question. I'm I'm not sure what to think. And and semi-pelagic is a shorter weed. It's a weed. It's and 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 I don't want to get way off into the weeds. No pun intended there. But it's common for us to renounce partial things. We've got to get at the root of it. There is. None righteous. There is no good. There is none who would do good, the scripture says. That means they're born without the ability to do good. It's an inherent inability. And it's, fought, it's created and, and put into us, built into us by sin. We're not, again, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. So, semi-Pelagianism, as Jim pointed out, has the belief that there's some ability and, but there's some dirt. There's that people are born pretty bad. They're pretty nasty, pretty awful, but they're not terrible. I, we can't use those modifying adjectives. People are born desperately evil. They're born without the ability to seek God because none will seek him. And that's the difference between, I guess, Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism and the truth, which is there is none righteous. No, not one. It's an amazing thing to me that the Holy Spirit chose, chose to use double negatives there. Now, in our world, a double negative is a positive. In the Greek world, it meant it was really, really, really bad. Or, if he said something good, it was really, really, really good. Um, like in Hebrews chapter 13, where it says, He never, no, never, no, never forsakes. From the song, that's actually from the original language. He will never, never, never. He didn't say it four times, so I won't leave you. In this, in this concept, in the concept that I can take a step towards God, it's no, you cannot. But I will, the Lord says. And that's what I'm glad about. That in my life, He willed me to become a child of God through no effort of my own. Because I wouldn't have made the effort. I can admit that now. Knowing what I know about Scripture first and then applying that to me. So Paul is saying to them, he's saying to them, who regards you as superior? In, in, you know what he was actually saying? I'm not. 
I'm the father of this church and I'm not regarding you as superior. What do you have that you did not receive? You received everything, including the grace to trust God. And why are you bragging about it as though you had not received it? That's three times he said essentially the same thing. Why do you think you're so great? You're not, you're not, you're not, is what he said. And so, Paul deals with the Corinthian pride in spades here. They were not superior, neither are we. They did not have anything that they generated on, our, on their own, neither do we. They were braggarts, and today we struggle with the same thing. Here's what he said in modern English. Knock it off. We all know what that means. We said it to our kids. Knock it off. Quit it. Stop. They did not have anything they generated on their own. They were braggarts. Knock it off. Everything. And the Holy Spirit means everything. That's what everything means. Was given to us by God. Even the faith we have to seek God in the first place came directly from his hand. And thus, it is that at its very root, man's pride will destroy his relationship with his father. He breaks down their defenses here, Paul does, and he starts with pride. It's a very good place to start. And he will continue through the rest for the rest of this chapter. Did, did everybody get a hand? I think in this body, there's been such solid teaching for so many decades that you've all got a handle on this, that, that, that it is sovereign grace that starts the journey towards God and continues it throughout life and results in eternal life. Right? Everyone's got that. I'm not confusing the issue here. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. He did it. I wouldn't have done it. Neither would you. And I'm not saying unkind things about you. I'm just including you with me. We're all dirtbags. We're all evil. Okay. Verse 8. Now, he's going to, oh, I, you know, this just makes it okay to be sarcastic. But only if you have the Holy Spirit dictating it. So I guess I can't do that. Or not dictating, but inspiring. Verse 8. You are already filled. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us. Huh. And indeed, I... I wish you had become king so that we also might reign with you. I can just picture Paul pacing back and forth as he dictated this to the Emmanuelenses. And, and I believe, here's something I believe, and, and maybe Jim can correct me if he thinks I'm wrong, but I don't think this was rote. I don't think he got, it was just boom, boom, and everything he got right because he was a man. The Holy Spirit was using a man. Everything that's here is right. But I can imagine, and I want to know about this when I get to heaven. Did he say, you this and then that? And, no. Erase that. Can you erase stuff with a papyrus? I probably can't. Here's what I really want to say. And so the Emmanuel just, and what we have is Holy Spirit inspired truth. But it, I just always wonder how it happened. You know, if, if Paul was just gutting it out on something and he realized, wait a minute, because I read scriptures like that. In Proverbs chapter 6, it says, there are six things that are, I can't remember the exact words, that are wicked. No, seven. It's like whoever wrote Proverbs chapter 6 went, wait a minute, there's one more. And, and the Holy Spirit inspired that. So here he says, you are already filled. He's being sarcastic. You're already filled. You've already become rich. We, you have become kings without us, without our, in, without our involvement, without the apostles' involvement. And indeed, <coughs> I wish that you had become kings so we might also remain with, reign with you. Continuing with two of the predominant methods of dialogue prominent in the New Testament world, irony and sarcasm, Paul continues to dismantle the Corinthians' bubble of false pride. You are already full to satisfaction, he says. You have an abundance of everything you want. You have become monarchs without our help. And then following the sarcasm with a bit of irony, and maybe even one commentator thought possibly wishful thinking, 
um, inspired narrative, if you will, wishful thinking. He allows that he wishes the Corinthians had become kings because then he, Apollos, and Cephas could reign with him. But, of course, only if they allowed it. Only if the high and mighty Corinthians allowed it. Does it sound like he's trying to shame them? I thought he was. Until later on, he tells me he wasn't. But that's, that's interesting. It's an interesting way that you can work in bringing people around to the truth. Um, the fact is, or I should say, Paul was saying, the Corinthians weren't reigning anywhere. They weren't rich. They didn't have everything they wanted. In fact, they had no cause to glory other than in the great and wondrous mercy that God had bestowed upon them by bringing them into the kingdom of light and making them some of his beloved. Making them some of his beloved. And if they understood all of that properly, and they certainly should have understood it with teachers like Paul, Apollos, and Peter, they certainly should. They would gladly give the glory to God. One commentator noted that in the absence, if, if, if we didn't have the context of the previous three and a half chapters, and Paul said this, they probably would have said, yeah, that's us. We're, we're mighty, we're filled, we're rich, we've become kings. We're great, we're wonderful. Without the context of the first three and a half chapters. So now he continues the contrast the sarcasm. Any questions about, I, I forgot to ask. Although you very well answered, asked questions about verse 7. Any questions about verse 8? You're already filled, you're wonderful, you're fabulous, you're great, you're, you're humongous, you're unbelievable, and we're, we wish we could reign with you. Okay. For I think... Now, Paul contrasts that, still in the spirit of contrasting. He says, I think God has exhibited us, us, apostles, as last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. What is it that, one of the things we want, and, and later on a commentator mentioned this too, but, uh, and I'll mention that when I get there. We kind of want to have it all. We want to have salvation, but we want to be well-liked. We want to have the glories of, of eternal life, but we want to have it all here too. And, you know, in this country, fortunately for us, that's somewhat has been true. But it isn't always, and it isn't everywhere. And it may not be here soon. <clears throat> so in the Roman world, when the Roman army conquered a people or won a major victory, they would celebrate it with what was called a triumph. What, that's what Paul is speaking about here. Um, they would parade through the city with pomp and circumstance. And first in the parade was the conquering general, followed by his troops and officers. And behind that group, kind of sandwiched, would be the prisoners in chains with the conquered king, the conquered king, and his officers prominently displayed. Here's who won. Here's who lost. Can you tell the difference? The guys that are in chains are the ones that lost. Behind that group... Uh, excuse me, behind that group would be the prisoners in chains and the general followed by his troops and officers. Um, they were all, this group of people, were all under the sentence of death and they would be marched eventually to the arena where they would be sacrificed in the games. Uh, James Moffat, one of the translators, translated it this way. God means us, this is how he translated verse 9. God means us apostles to come in at the very end like doomed gladiators in the arena, unquote. Contrasting the supposed full kingly Corinthians with the apostles described as a spectacle marching to death. Paul explains that God has done this and that he has allowed his apostles who, who after Christ would be allowed the, the immense 
privilege of being part of the foundation of the Christian church. To be marched before the world as spectacles, fools, verse 10, sufferers, verse 11, and the scum of the earth, verse 13. His object here, I think, was to wake the Corinthians up to the reality. Whoever chooses to truly serve Christ will find difficulty in this world. In this time, that difficulty could include your death. And the Corinthians, he said, needed to be realistic about that. We'll finish up with this verse. In some respects, Paul may have been even referring to the fact, and and one commentator pointed this out, that the Corinthians themselves were displaying Paul and the other apostles as men condemned to death. One commentator said it this way. This was Barclay. He said, The Corinthians, in their blatant pride, were like the conquering general, displaying the trophies of his prowess. The apostles were like the little group of captives, men doomed to die. To the Corinthians, the Christian life meant flaunting their pride and their privileges and reckoning up their achievements. To Paul, it meant humble service, ready to die for Christ. So next week, we'll look at the next three or four verses where he he continues, or actually more than that, but he continues to give contrast after contrast. And where he says, and then and then I'm going to kind of spoil the thunder here. For those of you that have already read 1 Corinthians, you know about this. But in verse 14, he surprised me. I mean, I've read this, but after reading it, coming off of studying these verses, he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So let's keep that in mind as we're going through this section of 1 Corinthians, especially the middle, chap- middle part of chapter 4, when he talks about When he talks about, they've become filled, we're poor. You're rich, we're we're destitute. You've become kings without us, and indeed, I wish that you were with us. Um, Before that, he says, actually, after that, excuse me, he says, and we'll get to that. We're fools, but you're prudent. We're weak, but you're strong. You are distinguished. We're honorless. We're without honor. And then he, he contrasted even more in chapter 11, or excuse me, chapter 4, verse 11. But remember this. He's doing this to admonish them, to turn them, just as Robert talked about this morning, to turn them from the weeds of false pride. I did it. I'm superior. I started this. I turned to Christ on my own. No. He did it. He started it. He turned you. He gave the grace at every step of the way. And what happens when we begin to believe that I did it, I'm responsible, then we begin to think we're already full, we're already rich, we're already kings. Then we begin to think that, well, maybe those apostles, they're condemned to death. Maybe guys like that, we don't want to be associating too much with them because it'll cost too much. And I, you know, I want to have my IRA and I want to have, and and I'm not, and and I'll talk about this as we get to it, I'm not talking about individually going out and just throwing stuff away, but being wise, being careful, being thoughtful, and recognizing that everything we have, this is so important, and it must be because it was brought up again and again, and it was dealt with again and again. Everything we have has come from the hand of God. Good, and what we perceive as bad, and I allege, I'm going to use that legal word, I allege that when we go to glory, We're going to see what we thought was bad and go, I see now. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad you did that. Because 
And I think he's even going to be, well, can he do this? Of course he can. He said, let there, Tim and I were talking about this this morning. I said, wouldn't you like to be able to go into the kitchen and go, let there be breakfast? Because you know? <laughs> we were talking about how come he, she said, how come he made the universe so big, so huge? Because we were talking about some stuff that we had read this week. And I said, I don't know, but I think one of the reasons is he's saying, you see this thing that the men are thinking is 13 billion light years across? You know how that started? I went like this, let there be light. And we think we know. Let's pray. Father, we are not filled. We are not rich. We are not kings. But we have everything that is necessary from your hand. And we are so grateful that we have from the very beginning the gift of faith that allowed us, that caused us, that sovereignly turned us from our own way to yours. Oh, what a delight. What a wonder that is. And I think that in the glories of the ages to come, we'll begin to plumb the depths of what a fantastic gift that was. But now we thank you for it. We ask you to give us wisdom to use that in the proper way, that gift, in spreading your love, spreading your encouragement, but also doing it in a manner that helps people understand that every good gift that everyone has comes down from the Father of lights who is above. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.